we are socialising girls en masse to see themselves as disposable sex objects. Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency, and on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the show today, Dr. Gail Dines, who is a professor, and she has been researching and writing about the porn industry for over 30 years. She's one of the leading anti-porn activists in the world. And with her organization, Culture Reframed, she helps parents build their kids' resilience to our hyper-sexualized media and social media world. She promotes progressive and science-based sex ed and is the author of the book, How Porn Has Hijacked Our Sexuality. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gail Dines. Dr. Gail Dines, how are you? I am well. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Kate. How are you doing? So great to see you. I'm doing really good. Now, I have to say that a few years ago, I heard you speak at the Women Moving Millions conference, and you blew the doors off the conference room. <laughs> how does how does one suddenly wake up one day and say, I'm going to become an expert in porn? Well, that's a question I ask myself a lot, actually, because when I was thinking what I was going to do, believe me, this was not on my list when I was around 16. So what happened was that I think I was born a feminist, right? I think I definitely, but, and I was particularly mm -hmm. concerned about violence against women. And I was working, volunteering at the local rape crisis centre when I was actually writing my doctoral dissertation. And somebody said, there's an anti-porn slideshow from the US. I was living in Israel at the time. Why don't you come and see it? So I went, tender age of 22, and my life just changed. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, I'd lived a somewhat sheltered life, um, born in Manchester to, um, you know, sort of not an orthodox Jewish family, but pretty sheltered Jewish community. And I was like, how is this possible? You know, for all my feminism and all my work on violence against women, this was the first time I saw porn. And I just, something hit me, you know? They say that an artist will find their instrument. I found it. It came at me. It actually, it found me, actually, to be perfectly honest. And I went home that night to my husband of one week. And I, I was like, I couldn't sleep. I told him what I'd saw. He was horrified. And the next morning, I called my PhD advisor. And I said, I'm changing my topic from sociology of education to sociology of pornography. And I think I wrote the first ever PhD in England on the sociology of pornography. And yeah. that was 30-odd years ago. And it still got me from that first day, the passion, the anger, the rage, and the desire to change the world is as strong as it was that first night I saw that 30-odd yeah. years ago. Well... I have so many questions for you. As a mother of a 10-year-old girl, it horrifies me to think that a few clicks on her smartphone will lead to some form of a pornographic image. Now, I've watched your TED Talks. I've read everything I can possibly find on you and your work with Culture Reframed. And you've come up with this phrase, pornified. Can you tell us what that means and why we should be worried as parents? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd, like, I'd love to claim ownership of that term, but everybody uses it around now. And I think the first time it was used was by Pamela Paul a while ago, but everybody uses that. But I specifically focus on that because 
Pornified captures in the porn culture. It's not just about pornography. It's about the hypersexualized mass media as well. So when you use the word pornified, what you're really saying is that the images and messages and ideologies and tropes of pornography filter down into mainstream media to the point that they become the blueprint for how you represent women's bodies. So we are awash in a pornified culture. You drive down a street and you see a big billboard, you know, with women barely clothed. You go on the TV and you see the same image. You flick through a magazine any everywhere you go we are bombarded with these pornified images that say one thing they all say the same thing women are basically reducible to disposable sex objects now pornography says it more succinctly more crisply more clearly however all of those images speak the same language mm. now tell us about the journey of a young boy and a young girl and when that journey into pornography, both seeing it and perhaps doing it, God forbid, when does all that start and, and how do they get there? Well, first of all, for a boy, you just have to be a boy in this culture. There's all, it's, it, we know that the average age of first viewing porn is around 11 and that by the age of 18, most boys all over the world, anywhere they've got access to the internet, have viewed porn and, and used it regularly. It is part of the culture. It is part of what it means to become male. It is a rite of passage into masculinity today to use pornography. So, I mean, the question would be, how do they avoid it, not how do they get there? Because that makes perfect sense. It's like, how do you avoid polluted air? You can't. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, even if they don't want to do this, the boys, there is intense peer pressure to do this. Mm -hmm. So there's no way around this. This is, this is why it's a public health crisis. For girls, it's the minute you sort of understand you're female and you start to look around the culture to say, you know, what is this thing, female? And, of course, because we live in an image-based culture, your views of what it means to be female are coming at you from Cosmopolitan, they're coming at you from Vogue, they're coming at you from Teen Vogue, they're coming at you from hip-hop. And, you know, Neil Postman, who was one of my favourite theorists in media, he says something really interesting. He said, you know, when we lived in a print-based culture, we developed some immunisation to the seduction of eloquence of the printed word, to which I would add, we have not de developed any such immunisation to the seduction of eloquence of the image. So these girls are bombarded with these hypersexualized images. Oh, this is just horrifying. When you think back to the 40s and 50s, the images that you'd see in magazines were women with, you know, pink ribbons in their hair baking cookies. And that was the image that you strive to become or be part of that culture. And now it's, I think you said in your tech talk, the fuck me face. Yeah, the fuck me look. But you know, that image of that woman in high heels and makeup, thrilled to be doing housework, was very destructive to that generation also, as well. Also. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were lot, we know they went nuts in the suburbs thanks to Bessie Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, that blew that apart. And this, but you know, I, I, this is interesting. There was the Stepford wife image. Yes. Today yes. it's the Stepford slut, right? The oh. Stepford slut has replaced the Stepford wife. Both are, yeah. both are not true. Both are produced by patriarchy. Both are mechanisms to police women. But there's no longer the Stepford wife. Believe me, if you want, the ways to a man's heart today is not through his stomach, it's through his penis, right? It's changed mm -hmm. dramatically. And mm -hmm. that's where the culture has sifted. Either way, women are still controlled by images produced by men for men. So we've all seen the film The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm. And it's 
terrifying as well, because we're all glued to our phones. We're all obsessed with Instagram and Facebook and all these different apps, as well as just, you know, watching YouTubes. I can't prize the phone out of my daughter's hand because she's watching endless YouTubes and TikToks. And what's that journey like? We were talking about this the other day. What are the sites that us as parents need to be most mindful of where it comes to what's leading our children to, to the porn sites? One answer, every site that kids are on, from Snapchat to Instagram to TikTok to YouTube. This is where kids get to their pornography. And the porn industry has cannibalized Snapchat and Instagram. Um, The predators have cannibalized TikTok. That's the site. When when I do uh, lectures with uh, Interpol and the FBI, they say most predators are on TikTok looking for kids. But they're on all the others as well. But TikTok is the most dangerous site. They're going to come across pornography wherever they go, even if they're not looking for it. The porn industry is targeting them. This is what, you know, we have to realize the algorithms that the porn industry develops actually targets them. And while I loved the movie, the documentary Social Dilemma, I thought it was brilliant. Where was pornography? Not one of them taught. And actually, who do you think really set the whole stage for this? It wasn't Facebook. It was the porn industry. They brought in the leading uh, thinkers, thought leaders, software, hardware designers before even Facebook was an idea in Zuckerberg's brain. So, and I kept thinking, where is porn? Where is porn? Because that was the blueprint for everything we see now. The most sophisticated industry. It's no accident that actually a lot of R&D money went to creating the internet from pornography, right? It's no, they are, they were there at the very beginning because they knew Mm -hmm. that the more you got porn on the internet, the more affordable, the more anonymous, the more accessible you made it. So the grace of the demand. Mm -hmm. They were brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I loved the social dilemma, but oh, I was sat there through the whole thing saying, come on, someone say pornography. Mm. Well, it's a little bit like prostitution, isn't it? As in, it's one of the oldest professions and porn were never going to be able to end it. That's how I feel. Do you feel the same way? I mean, you are one of the leading activists in the world against porn. Are we going to be able to regulate it? And, and what's your journey been in that regard? Well, absolutely. I mean, if you're an activist, the answer to any question is, can you do it, is yes. Otherwise, why bother? Okay, you have to, you know, have that hope in your head. And I think that's really crucial. So I think if there's, the trouble is there's no political will, right? Remember when WikiLeaks went up? It was down in, what, two hours? They knew how to take it down. It's not like this is rocket science. They've done this before. So what I would argue is that we need to regulate this industry out of existence. We need to make the production and consumption of pornography so cumbersome with regulation that it's simply not worth it. And yes, if there was political will, and I have to say, I have um, uh, consulted for governments in the UK, in Sweden, in Norway, recently in Colombia, in Brazil. I mean, if there is a political will to do this, Yes, it can be done. And you know what it's going to take? I think it's going to take enraged mothers who Mm. say, you know what, you're not having my kid. I'm sorry, but I love my kid. I have slathered him or her in love, and I'm not handing you over to the pornographers. So it is going to take us to build a movement to say no and to force the government to do something. It's Mm. always the people out there, especially women, who are the ones who are the change makers. So we know now that our children are using porn in place of sex ed. 
or they're getting their first sex ed from porn, let's say. And the schools are doing their best to build that curriculum. Some schools don't even bother in some states. What would you say is the most damaging effect of our young children, you say as early as 11 years old, I have one year to go for that for my daughter. So I'm so glad to have met you so I can get some tips from you. What are the damaging effects of both boys and girls watching porn at this stage of their lives? Okay, so we have 40 years of empirical research on the harms. In the last 10 years, the research has really increased because so many kids are exposed to porn. So what do we know? We know that the younger, and this is mainly boys, by the way, because they're the ones seeking out porn more than the girls at that age. So the earlier they get to porn and the more porn they watch, the more likely they are to turn into sexual predators, the more likely they are to have anxiety, depression, the more likely they are to be sexually harassers, the more likely they are to lose their capacity for connection, relationships, intimacy, everything that makes you human porn strips of these boys. I see boys as victims here, absolutely, of the porn industry. And as the mother of a son, you know, I speak on behalf of boys here. How dare they do this to our boys as well as our girls? So the effects are profound on boys. And you know, also, it's traumatizing. When a boy puts, I don't know, boobies or whatever butts into Google, which is how he's looking for porn. He doesn't put porn in. He thinks he's going to be lucky if he sees a pair of breasts, if he sees even a naked woman. He is not ready to be catapulted into the world of sexual torture that is Pornhub, which is where we will end up for sure. Pornhub, which is owned by MindGeek, by the way, which is the Amazon of pornography industry. So he is not prepared for this. And as he is watching this aroused, sitting in that boy's stomach is a toxic stew of anger, rage, self-loathing, shame, and just disgust. And think about what that means to that 11-year-old boy who has got nobody to speak to. Because the porn, I've actually seen on porn, which again is, you know, these boys are on, are you man enough for this? They are pulling them in. Because these boys are probably going nuts watching this. But they're saying, you know, can you do this? Are you man enough? We know you want this. This is what men want. They, they sort of weave a web like a spider does to pull this 11-year-old boy in. They are really an incredibly predatory industry and a very sophisticated one at that. Mm. So I do know that rape and porn is illegal, as in filming rape scenes in porn. But, you know, doing my research for this show, I did go onto Pornhub and it was scary what I saw. The amount of force and the gagging, girls literally throwing up from forceful gagging. And, and I mean, need I go on? We're all aware of what kind of images. And it all just seems the same stuff. A man forcing himself on a woman. Talk to us about that a little bit. And and how's the porn industry getting around the laws? Okay, well then, first of all, let's just say I wish more people knew what was going on. Because mm. when I lecture... Very, even I'm talking now pediatricians or therapists, forget parents, even the experts who are charged with taking care of kids don't know. So just so your viewers know, the average porn scene is on Pornhub is a woman being orally, anally, vaginally penetrated, choked, strangled, being spat upon, being called every name under the sun, her hair being pulled. You can see she's, she's, she doesn't know what to do with herself. And the end, of course, is always ejaculation on her face and usually in her eyes and you know although it doesn't 
she keeps saying, yes, I love it. The truth is, it's a rape scene you're watching. She didn't know what she was going to get herself into. I have interviewed so many women who've exited the porn industry. They had no idea this was going to happen to them. And, you know, they all say the same thing. Something happened to me that first day on the set. Something changed in me. And what changed? They became a rape victim. They don't really get that. But they thought they were consenting because, you know what, they signed a contract. But it wasn't an informed consent contract. They didn't tell them exactly what was going to happen and how they would feel. So these women, the shock on it. So really, in a way, although it's they're not saying stop, don't rape me. They're saying yes, yes, yes. It is a rape scene, what you're seeing, because they're not prepared for this. And they didn't sign on to this. And secondly, they're not getting wrapped. The bizarre thing is there's virtually no laws. It is the most unregulated, above-ground, multi-billion-dollar-a-year industry. Now, how they've gotten Pornhub recently is on the use of trafficked girls, underage girls. But, I mean, if they're not... Well, most of them clearly are trafficked because there's a pimp involved, but they wouldn't call that trafficking, although it is. They're out there in plain sight. It's not like they're hiding. You know, Pornhub is one of the top ten sites on the internet it's up there with facebook and youtube they're in plain sight so they're only breaking the law if somebody decides in law enforcement and the government that they are breaking the law you can have as many laws as you want on the books if you're not enacting them they're useless mm. i'm watching your ted talk you talk about girls being porn ready mm. and i've seen the documentaries girls wanted which was just horrifying to me because these girls that were turning up for the auditions were from good families. You know, they come from suburbia and they turn up and they seem to be porn ready. Talk to us about that. Well, porn ready is actually what Joanna Angel, who's a pornographer, said, and, and she put it beautifully, although I hate to put her and the word mm. beautiful in one sentence, but she said, um, the girls these days, they just come to the set porn ready. And what she means is we are socialising girls en masse to see themselves as disposable sex objects. In fact, the culture is grooming them through these images and ideologies that they are indeed worthy of being used, sexually used and abused. And what's interesting, to add to that porn ready, I'll give you a piece of empirical evidence. So I found myself in a local state prison interviewing eight men, who all of whom were in for downloading child sexual abuse images and raping a child. And one particularly unsavory guy who had raped his 10-year-old stepdaughter was trying to tell me how smart he was. And he kept using the word grooming just to let me know. And uh, by the way, your viewers should know that not one of these men was a pedophile. They were all men who preferred sex with adult women but got to kiss because, the quote, they were bored, right? They were all porn addicts and were bored. So you're bored, you blow up a kid's life. So then this particularly unsavory one is, you know, talking about how he groomed his 10-year-old stepdaughter. And then he said something that, I swear, this was the last piece of the puzzle that helped me write Pornland. He said, the culture did a lot of the grooming for me. There you go. Joanna Angel, porn ready. The perpetrator, the abuser, saying the culture is getting them, well, she was getting rape ready. It's the same thing. Both of them, the pornographer and the perpetrator, talking the same language because they're using the same playbook about how you socialise our girls en masse into becoming what I would argue is the term compliant victims of pornography, rape, trafficking. You know, the, really, the culture is doing the work of the pimps, of the traffickers, of the pornographers. Mm -hmm. It is a perp culture we live in. So you talk about culture, and then, you know, I just think back to the last four years, right? 
where a character that has featured in our last four years is, is a porn star called Stormy Daniels, who had sex with the former president of the mm-hmm. United States and mm-hmm. became an idol. And, you know, she depicts fame and beauty and success. And, and then you also get to the Kardashians, who are marketing geniuses. And what kicked all that off was a homemade, basically, sex scene. And then you've got also Paris Hilton. Same thing happened. Talk to us about this a little bit, because, I mean, we're, we're going in the wrong direction, where, you know, the Kardashians are now probably one of the most famous families on the planet. You can go anywhere in the world and people will know who the Kardashians are. And then you look at the images of them, you know, big boobs, tiny waists, big hips. Uh, What are we doing here? What are we doing? Well, there there are actually three very different cases. So first of all, Paris Hilton, by the way, did not want that sex tape uh, released. She tried to sue her boyfriend, who was, by the way, I think 14 years older than her when he made it. she And it was the best-selling porn tape that of the year. So yeah. she really tried... She did, she did not want this. On the other hand, the Kardashians were involved in the selling of this tape. And by the way, the Kardashians are not a family. They're a global corporation, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, they really are. Stormy Daniels is nowhere close to the Kardashians. No. Okay, I mean, she is now a kind of, you know... She's too old for the porn industry. I, I don't know how much money she's got, but I assume she's nowhere near the Kardashians. And if we've got a second, I can tell a very interesting story about when I was on television with Stormy Daniels. So yes. I'm not going to say which station I was on, who it was, which channel, but I was in Boston and she was wherever, and she was actually in the studio. So when you're on satellite, they turn off the sound and then they put you on when you start. But they forgot to turn off the sound in the sound room. So I could hear the guys talking about her. So to her face, they were really, you know, all like fawning over her. But after what I could hear, they didn't realize was, oh, what a filthy slut. They were talking about what the size of a vagina must look like. And I didn't say a word, because I wanted to hear what they were saying, of course. I didn't let them know that I could hear everything. But it was so interesting to see the way they really thought about Stormy Daniels. And then when she comes on, you know, of course, they're all falling over themselves to say how great she is but you should have really heard them. I think what we're doing is that we're saying now that in order, you've got two choices to girls now. You're either visible or invisible. What does visible mean in a porn culture? It means looking fuckable. That's it. Mm-hmm. And so what choices do our girls have? And you know, adolescence is that time of development, developmental stage, where you absolutely need to be visible. That is really the DNA of adolescence. So if all your friends are walking around in hypersexualized clothing with the mesh and the low-slung jeans and the pierced belly button, what are you going to do if you don't want to look like that because you're going to be rendered invisible? And after my talks, often in high schools and colleges, I have young girls lining up just crying, half saying I'm the visible and I hate it because I can't stand looking like this, but I've got, I've got no choice because I don't want to be invisible. And the others crying, saying I'm invisible and I hate it, but I can't do the fuckable look. And when I say that in my lectures, that you're visible, either you're fuckable or invisible, I have to say the room of young women, they gasp because that's what they realise has been happening to them. This is not a choice. This has been forced on them by the culture. And this Mm -hmm. is the choice. Now, when you and I were growing up, I mean, we had our, you know, highly visible 
stars who were hypersexualized. But we had other options as well of what it meant to be a woman. I remember realizing, God, you know, I could be smart and get a PhD and go and do all this, and this is an option for me. But today, whatever the options are, if you don't put in the visibility and conformity to the porn culture, it doesn't matter what else you do. It's a very different world. Now, you have three different courses on Culture Reframed that parents can go to to talk to their tweens and their teenagers, their adolescents about porn. Because I am, a, I mean, call me old-fashioned, but I believe that kids do listen to their parents, even though it's like, oh, no, 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 that's mm. icky. No, no, don't. I mean, my daughter does this all the time because I am drumming all of this into her. <laughs> But I know that she listens. And isn't this the same as smoking or drugs? I mean, shouldn't we have it fall into that category of how we talk to our children and what do we talk to our children about? Okay, so first of all, we have the parents of tweens and one for parents of teens. And then we have enrichments, which mm. go deeper into issues of porn and the brain, how to teach sex ed with a porn critical lens. And we're actually holding a conference, Culture Reframed is holding a virtual conference in October, an international one, on how to teach sex ed with a porn critical lens. Because unless you unpack the pornography that kids have learned in sex ed, there's no point in trying to teach anything. So this is what we say, first of all. And this is what sex educators say. Do not have 100-minute conversation. Mm. Have 101-minute conversations. Mm. So, and the other thing is, don't follow them around the house lecturing. Use <laughs> teachable. I know, I know, because I, believe me, with my son, I wanted to sit him down and lecture to him, yeah. you know. Um, and I can talk a bit about how I did it with my son as well, because there was some interesting mm -hmm. stuff that we did. Yeah. Um, he's now in his 30s, but I can certainly talk about that. So the thing we say is, first of all, our programs are designed for parents to develop the skills, knowledge, and confidence to have the porn talks with their kids. And not mm -hmm. just about porn, but about relationships, sexuality, everything. They were built by a multidisciplinary team of experts, including pediatricians, sexual health experts, adolescent therapists, adolescent developmental experts, all along the line, neuroscientists, and they're very accessible. You can go in for five minutes, five days, five hours. They've got embedded videos, and they're really accessible. But the most important mm. thing is they're research-driven. So everything mm. you get there, is based on research. They took about a year and a half each and you wouldn't know that about eight to ten specialists worked on them because they're pretty seamlessly put together. And the idea is how do you have these conversations? So first and foremost, you know that thing it says in um, when you're on a plane, first fasten your own seatbelt, then fasten your kids. Well, this is fastening your own seatbelt. This is getting mm. to understand before you talk to your kid. Because believe me, you're going to make a hell of a mess of this if you don't know your stuff. So we give you all this knowledge. And then we actually say, how do you do these conversations? And we even script out conversations. And it was funny because we were not planning on scripting out 12 conversations on how to talk to a kid about body image, sexting, pornography. But I was doing a tour of LA and I was spoke to about 2,000 parents just before we finished the Parents of Tweens program. And at the end, I would say, you know, and at the end of the program that's going to be up next month, we're going to have bulleted points on what to say to your kids. And the parents would literally jump out of their seat and say, no bullets, script out, tell us what to say word for word. So mm. I had to go back to our parent expert and say, sorry, but you need to write it out. Now, of course, you don't have to follow it word for word, but we get, and then we say, look, your kid would rather be anywhere else in the world than talking to you about pornography. Yes. So it's probably going to go bad. So we give you, if it's going bad, we show you how to bring it back. And then we say, if it's really going bad, shut up, walk away and do a redo. 
and a redo and a redo. We say, for example, also that when you're talking, especially to boys, this is very important, do not do it eye to eye. Do it in the car so you're not looking at them. Mm. Or mm. my kid used to like baking, so I would be at one end of the kitchen, he would be at the other. He also loved mountain biking. My husband took up mountain biking and used that. My husband spent the year on crutches after that, but at least it was worth it that he got to spend time with my son, uh, even though he was falling off the bike all the time. But mm -hmm. these are the ways to have the conversations and we tell you. So you yourself have to know. And we say things like, look, if you walk in and catch your kid on the phone with porn, close the door and walk out. Mm. Go to culturerefrain.org, go to our mm -hmm. parents' program and read the Compose Yourself model. Because the last thing you want to do is talk to your kid when you're upset and angry because that kid will be absolutely distraught that you've caught them with porn. So yeah. we say, leave it alone, compose yourself if you've got some ideas of how to be more mindful. Then mm -hmm. we suggest you go back, you knock on the door, and then you say, I know this must be difficult for both of us, and you know what, within the next two days we do have to talk about this, but mm. you decide when you want to within the next two days, but it has to be within the next couple of days. And that way, your kid has time to collect himself. Mm -hmm. Also, mm -hmm. the pornography industry has been leeching power from him. You're giving him a little bit of power back by letting him decide the window of when he's going to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, for girls... You have similar conversations. You're not less likely to walk in with them watching porn. You're more likely to see sexting or them getting sex, um, hypersexualized images or them having conversations on the phone. And by the way, parents should know that a lot of kids talk to each other in emojis when they yeah. want to talk about having sex. Like yeah. teardrops yeah. mean ejaculation, the peach means anal sex, etc. So look out for emojis on your kid's phone. Mm. So And do never shame and blame. Right? The shame and blame goes on the culture, not on your kids' shoulders. Those mm -hmm. are very little shoulders to put a lot of shame and blame. So the program is chock full of how to do this. Mm -hmm. And this is what we mm -hmm. said. Parents can't do this alone. So we brought, and it was thanks to Women Moving Millions, by the way, that yeah. we got the um, donations from those wonderful women that helped start Culture yeah. Refrained and that we did this. And that was the first thing we did is we pulled together public health experts and said, we have been given donations to start a nonprofit. What makes the most sense? And everyone was on the same page. Educate mm -hmm. the parents. And you know what? Our programs are so research-driven, so interesting, and there's nothing like them out there in the world that we now have therapists all over the world using them. We have pediatricians. We have educators. We didn't plan for this, but they've mm -hmm. suddenly taken off with professionals because there's nothing else out there for them. Now, when we talk about parents, let's talk about the dads for a second because... You know, I don't know a guy who doesn't watch porn. I don't. I do not know a single man that doesn't watch porn. And I also know a lot of men who have 16-year-old sons mm -hmm. who don't see it as a problem that their son is watching porn. In fact, they're like, you know, be a man, you know, be a man. What's the solution there? Is this, is this like smoking cigarettes where you make your kid smoke an entire pack of cigarettes so they don't smoke cigarettes? Do you sit down and show them porn? No. Like, okay. I, so you don't do that. But what about the dads? Because the dads are so influential on their boys' life. You know, girls I get. Like, I mean, I certainly know now how to talk to my daughter after watching your courses. But what about the dads? The dads who are like, man up. Very, very difficult. 
Really good question and probably the most difficult question you've asked me in the whole um, discussion. Mm -hmm. First of all, you, the, all listening out there who've got kids should know that if either parent, it's usually the dad, uses porn, the kid is more likely to use more porn mm -hmm. and at an earlier age. So first mm -hmm. of all, you are setting the stage for your kid for potentially developing a lifelong habit of using porn and then all the impacts and domino effect that that has. So I think the real question here is, what do we do with the women who are partnered with these men? Right? Because if they're gonna, because I have had so many women say to me, if I have the porn talks with my son and daughter, does that mean I have to have it with my husband? Mm -hmm. And this is when trouble really starts. I mean, you've got a life with this man, you've got a mortgage, you've got kids, you've got the lot. And I, there are, Excellent TED Talks out there about why men should stop using porn, right? And I would recommend that. But I think the most important thing for women is we have to start raising the bar of what we expect from the men in our lives. Mm. Communication. Uh, yeah. Got to stop it. If he's using porn, this is a major issue in your marriage and in your relationship. But Gail, I, you know, I'm doing my research for this show. I talked to a lot of my friends and they watch porn with their partners to get excited. They are as a couple watching porn. I mean, is there, is there any place at all? I mean, there's any room. Is there any way to use porn in a good way? That's like asking me, can you walk into McDonald's and order steak or poivre? No, McDonald's is an industry that produces hamburgers, right? That's it. <laughs> Pornography is an industry that produces hardcore porn, right? There's virtually no there's a tiny bit of softcore porn out there. And even that, we know from studies, is problematic because it sexualizes women, it turns them into sex objects. So none of the studies suggest in any way that you can use any type of porn and mm. not begin to sexually objectify women. And mm. what I would say is, you know, remember porn is actually produced to cause a sizzle in the body. You know, it's not people having sex because if you watch people having sex, if you watched mm. a video of the average couple having sex, you'd fall asleep in the middle. It's so boring. Yeah. Right? They have yeah. to make it sizzle more to keep right. you watching. So my argument would be, why not go and have sex? That's more fun. Right, go and do it mm -hmm. yourself. Go and experience your own orgasms. Don't watch somebody else. And really, the bigger question is, should you be a voyeur of somebody at their most intimate? What gives you the right to watch them and look at them when you don't know their name, you don't know their mm -hmm. past, their wants, mm -hmm. their desires, their history, you don't know how they ended up in porn, you don't know anything about them? What right do you have to look at them at their most intimate? intimate so this becomes a real issue of power dynamics is that those who are more privileged have the right to watch the less privileged well so 50 shades of gray good bad awful like you know there is a reason that that film and that book was a massive hit and women so women read that book women watched that film talk to me about that it's like bored housewives right Got the book on the nightstand. You see yeah. women on the beach reading Fifty totally. Shades of Grey, right? It's storytelling and it's erotica and it's appealing to women. Well, let me ask you a question. If Mr. Grey was unemployed and living in a housing project, do you think he would have been so attractive? No. Right? It was <laughs> the money. Point. It's the money, right? The lifestyle he offered her. Now, remember, she was supposed to be, I think, 21. She actually, if you read the book, she had the developmental age of about a 14-year-old. So actually, it was more about pedophilia here and him going after a very young, 
very uneducated, kind of developmentally somewhat slow young woman who didn't really, she didn't even know what an orgasm was at 21. She'd never right. heard of it. I mean, these were not the normal things of a 21-year-old and the way she behaved. Mm. And the, and I spoke to me, I did a, a lot of uh, research on this book. I had, we had um, focus groups. Many of the women I spoke to, not all, and I'm sure not many, but a lot of them did go run past the SNS, the, the BDSM places. They didn't want to see all of that. Some of them did like enjoy it, but they didn't get to see what was happening. And I, and I actually went to the film, the opening day, and it was at the local, um, this is when we used to go to the movies, you know, pre-COVID, and it was at the local cinema, which has nine different screens. Every single one was showing Fifty Shades of Grey on opening day, and I got the last ticket at three uh, on a 3.30, right, on a Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. So I go, and the atmosphere, it's full of young women and me, okay, and the atmosphere was like electric, electric. They couldn't wait for the film. Mm. And this was a very fancy cinema, so they're all drinking mojitos. You could get mojitos, in the, and everyone's toasting. And then the film comes on, and you literally can feel the, the mood change, mm. right? Mm. Gone is the exciting atmosphere, and suddenly there's a kind of death-like atmosphere. And after it was, and I sat there, by the way, and I was writing an article for, I think it was The Guardian for it. So I was taking notes. I was crying my eyes out through the whole thing. The tears were dropping on my notes because I was so upset by what I was seeing. And it was so interesting because I, because what you were seeing was pure sadism, right? And what was so interesting is you always saw her undressed. You never saw him undressed. Mm. And in the scenes where he's really beating the shit out of her, okay, she's hanging from a, she's hanging from a ceiling in chains with her arms behind her back. And he's whipping her. And I'm watching her and he's got his pants on, right? And I, I'm looking, he's got no erection. Mm. So it wasn't even sexual for him. For her, she's like moaning. And I'm watching, I thought they couldn't even put an erection in his trousers, just, just pretend he had one. It was pure <laughs> sadism. So afterwards, when it was over the film, there was like nobody moved. None of the young women moved. Mm. So I got my notebook out and I said, I'm writing an article. Can I interview about this film? Mm -hmm. And you know what? They were really upset. Mm. It mm. was not... Gone was that mood. They, they suddenly realised what they were watching. Violence. Sexual violence. And actually, what I started an organisation at that point. It was just a Facebook thing that took off around the world. And we called it $50 instead of 50 shades. And what we mm -hmm. said is, instead of going to the movie give $50 to the local domestic violence shelter because that's where she's going to end up, right? Mm. This is where Anastasia is going to end up. In a few years, that woman will be running for her life with her teeth knocked out, with two traumatised kids in tow because he would have followed her to the ends of the earth to kill her, right? He wasn't letting mm. her go. Mm. She, this is how we know women end up in battered women's shelters. It was a retelling of the story as a way, again, to socialise women, to groom them into getting ready for batterers. Because believe me, you do not end up living in a beautiful home with no. a wonderful man who's taking you all over. You end up battered, bruised and traumatised. So very sadly, we're coming to the end of the show because I know that all our listeners and myself could have this conversation for weeks on end. Let's talk about you for a second, Gail. You've been immersed in this for 30 years. How has this affected you and your sex life? I mean, you know the worst of the worst of the worst. Oh, and now you're asking personal questions. I know. Okay. I know. Right. Naughty okay. me. Naughty okay. me. Okay, yeah. You, know, you threw this one on me, didn't you, Kate? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let me say, I was very, very fortunate. I met the love of my life at 18. The mm. least creepy man I've ever met, David. Mm. Mm. Um, he has been 
the most pro-feminist man I've ever met. Mm -hmm. He has known, we've been married now, what, 40-odd years? He has known when to stand by my side, when to stand behind me, and when to stand in front of me. Mm. I could not have done this without him. And he's still the love of my life. Aww. And then, of course, at a tender age of 25, I gave birth to the, 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 the love of my life, which is Aww. a son, Aww. right? I have a, a son. And I, I'm surrounded by wonderful people. And I think, mm. I'll be honest, I think if I was single and, and heterosexual was on the dating scene, I don't think I could go near Men, because I'd have to take a questionnaire for a star. Have you ever seen pornography? How much have you watched? Have you ever done this? You know, I mean, I think I'm just very fortunate to have met this very mm. non-creepy guy who completely agrees with me. And in fact, he's a professor of economics and we write together about the porn industry. We've published many articles together. His actual research is on climate change, but little did he know we'd be brought into pornography. And him and I have written numerous articles on the political economy of the porn industry, him with the economics perspective and me with the sociology perspective. Mm. And actually, mm. we were just on a walk last night and I said to him, you know, if I was sick one day and I had to do my talk, I'm sure you could give it. Because, mm. you know, he's heard me speak so many times. And... It's just, so in a way it hasn't because it's David who's not that. And I have managed to compartmentalise pornography mm. and keep it way out of my bedroom. Mm. Because otherwise, let me tell you, I'd never have sex again in most of my life if I didn't. Yeah, well, I, I have to say, I asked you that question because, you know, I've spent the last 25 years visiting different countries, going to brothels, going to... Mm impoverished regions and seeing the worst type of sex exploitation that any human being yeah. could possibly see. And I come back and I'm traumatized for a couple yeah. of weeks. Can't think about having sex. That's you know, true. it's those images are in my head. And that's why I asked you that question. Well, listen, this, this show is called Sex, Body and Soul. So my last question for you is, give us a tip about sex, as in how do you get ready? to have sex. What's the one thing you do for self-care of your body and what feeds your soul? My last question. What I do to care for my body is this wonderful body movement thing called Feldenkrais. And it's very, and it actually puts you back in, it embodies you because after watching porn, you're right, I get to a point sometimes where I can't stand my own body. So I do this Feldenkrais, which is an extremely embodying, it's a bit like yoga, it's too hard to explain at the end of a podcast, but it's wonderful. And I recommend people out there to look mm -hmm. into Feldenkrais. And how do you feel your soul? I think how you feed your soul is by the people around you you love. And ultimately, number one, you become the architect of your own sexuality. You decide yourself mm -hmm. what your mm -hmm. homosexuality is. And number two, what feeds me is you fight like hell against the patriarchy. They're mm. not going to win. That's mm. what is my mantra. That's what keeps me going every day of my life. Uh, if I'm going to go down and my sisters are going to go down, we're not going down without a fight, believe me. Mm. We are going to fight till the end. And you know what? I believe we're going to win because truth will eventually prevail. It absolutely has to. Mm. I truly but Otherwise, I wouldn't have been doing this for 30 years. Well... You know, pleasure is a human right for Absolutely. both women and men. Men have pleasure easier than mm -hmm. women. And what horrifies me is the regulations that are out there. When Pornhub is so accessible, it's one click, right, on your own Pornhub. It maddens me that there are such regulations about female sexual pleasure yeah. through Facebook, through Instagram. You know, why are we regulated when? Pornhub is so accessible and non-regulated. Nothing is regulated. 
Anyway, the point is, is the world is lucky to have you, Gail. We are lucky to have you on our body board for the, the body agency. And I know I'm going to have you on so many times mm -hmm. um, because you are such a genius in this. We all thank you for your work and Pornhub, watch out. Yeah, we're coming after you. Thank you, Kate, for your work as well. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all of my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. Be sure to sign up for our email list at thebodyagency.com for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts. Thanks for listening.